Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Great Birth Rebellion. And today, B and I both have husky voices because we are both... It's the sexy episode. Let's just call it that. The sexy episode. The sexy episode. (laughs) Really, it's the sicky episode where both of us aren't feeling too good yeah. <laughs> but let's okay. be compassionate to ourselves we're awesome we're, we've reached twenty thousand downloads so I don't 20, know 000, well i texted you last week and said hey b we've reached twenty thousand downloads and actually as of today and not that i check it daily but i you know i'm up in my website i don't check it daily but i'm up in my website checking on things and doing all kinds of stuff all the time and i end up just checking the podcast and we are currently three times up, a day three times a day we are up to 23,000 downloads. All right, episode 14. Today we're talking about pushing out your baby. We've already been through vaginal exams. We've been through the stages of labor, which we've all worked out by now are completely bogus. And so now we're focusing on the second, what what the textbook, okay, speech marks, what the textbook calls the second stage, which is the pushing phase of labor. So women's cervix is fully out of the way and she's ready to push out her baby. And as diagnosed. B's got a lot to say about this because. So much to say about this. As diagnosed by the medical profession, this stage is completely made up and does not encompass any physiological knowledge or common sense yeah we spoke about that in episode 11 so if you don't know what we're talking about in terms of stages go back and listen to episode 11 and if you don't know what episode 11 is talking about you have to listen to episode 10 so we're kind of carrying on with that my heart's already racing that's how passionate i am like i'm already like let me at it like i'm like let me at like someone's holding me back i said to be first let me explain the different ways that women can be instructed to push and then I will let you unleash. Okay, I promise. All right, clear your throat. <clears throat> We're ready. We're unleashing. So here we are. You've labored. You've labored. You're fully dilated. Your cervix is out of the way. The next thing your body is going to do is redirect the activity of your uterine muscle to start pushing your baby out because the uterus has three layers of muscles and they all function differently at, e- at different stages of your labor. And so the initial contractions that you have are not interested in pushing your baby out. They're interested in pulling your cervix up and out of the way but the contractions that you get and the activity that your uterus has at the part of your labor where you're ready your baby's ready to be expelled and pushed from your body the activity of your uterus changes from trying to draw up your cervix to trying to push down your uterus and your baby so here we are that's where we're at and we talked about as well in episode 11 that this stage can be governed by increased levels of adrenaline in order to give you the energy and power that you need to be part of that process and to be alert and ready for your baby. So pushing out your baby, there's two, I mean, there's many more, but if we start with the basics of talking about the two different ways that you could push your baby out, and this is for women, we're going to start talking about women who don't have epidurals because it's a really different situation if you do have an epidural. So there's two kind of techniques, I guess, techniques in speech marks. 
The first technique, and this is what you would do if you were just going with your body, is we call it spontaneous or physiological. Spontaneous or physiological pushing. And this is where you just follow your body, wait for it to do its thing, and where you start to feel an urge to bear down and you just go with whatever your body is doing. That's what we call a physiological or spontaneous birth of the baby in your pushing phase. And in that phase, the practitioner, all the practitioner does is give words of encouragement, reassurance. You know, you're doing great. This is perfect. Wonderful. There's no directing on how or when to push or how long to push for or when to start pushing or anything like that. It's all directed by the woman's body and she's encouraged to just go with her natural urges. Then there's the option of coached pushing, which is what I, when I was a baby midwife, that's pretty much all I saw in the hospital was women being coached push, coached to push. And that can happen in a few ways. Sometimes it happens if the midwife's done a vaginal exam and discovered that the woman's fully dilated. She'll go, great, you're fully dilated. It's time for you to push with the next contraction. I'm going to tell you when to push. And we get, and they usually count to 10. So they'll say, okay, push, 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 push. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then the woman pushes and pushes and pushes. And they encourage them not to make a sound out of their throat. And to like put their chin to their chest, knees to their nipples and push in what I call the stranded beetle position. And so this is coached pushing where the women are not encouraged to wait for a natural urge to push or go with their natural urges. And so there's been research on this. But before I go any further, B, that's what I want to say about the two different options to start with. Go. How good did I do then? I muted myself and I just let you talk. I'd say there's also, I'd say there's two more options on top of that. The third is, and you did a great push, 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 push. Sounds like hens. I just want to say here, as with everything, we're always, no one turns up to work and goes, I really want to mess someone's birth up today, right? And in some situations, we do things and when we reflect back, we're like, oh, maybe that wasn't good. Or sometimes you're like, maybe I needed it. And I remember this first birth, one birth I was at when I was a new grad. I was looking after a really young woman and this old midwife came in um, and I was telling the woman, just go with your body, just listen to your body, do your thing. As I, I was being the midwife I wanted to be. And this older midwife came in and coached, pushed this woman and this young woman, you know, she was 16 at the time, birthing her baby. And she was so thankful to this midwife who I couldn't stand. Like I hated working with her. And in that moment, it was such a great experience to have in my early career because I realized that you don't always get to be the midwife you want to be. You have to be the midwife that the woman needs you to be. So if you've had coach pushing, I just want to say I've done it. I've had to do it sometimes. It's worked really well sometimes. And often the reason we're doing it is because we're trying to beat the clock. We're trying to stop the unnecessary intervention that we know is going to happen. And so this is where we go. And for some women, some women really like that. The other two types of pushing that I would say there are is a combination of what you've just described, where women are encouraged to go with their body and to do their thing. And then all of a sudden we hit a time frame and it turns into coach pushing. The fourth type, I would argue, is the fetal ejection reflex. 
which isn't physiological pushing in terms of us naming it. It isn't, it's physiological pushing in the sense that it is the body actually pushing and that is the physiological stage of pushing. But I think what we have done in our attempt to move away from coach pushing, which is something that we created, was develop what we call spontaneous pushing and that is based around the urge to push which we don't have evidence on this yet because I think what we've done is we've misunderstood the fetal ejection reflex and we've gotten confused with the urge to push and I believe the urge to push actually is its own separate stage of labor and I describe it as like the urge to vomit we have this urge we want to do something but we're not actually physiologically doing it yet it's the body telling us it's the warning signs it's a message and so i really see the fetal ejection reflex as physiological pushing and urge to push is still a top for me and you may not agree with this, but I still, I see urge to push as still a type of coach pushing because the woman says, I've got this urge. And her rep- the reply to that is typically go for it, go with your body, which is still coached. And I do believe that stage needs guidance for most women not all, and this is where I want to say there is no wrong or right. It's about finding your groove and finding your groove in whatever place you're birthing with, with who you're birthing with. But I do believe that stage needs guidance and support and is actually a part of labor. And just like labor needs guidance and support often, not always, but often, so does that stage. When we look at the evidence, it's not broken down. And we're going to talk about Nigel Lee's study, which is mind-blowingly epic. But when we look at the evidence, it breaks it down into spontaneous pushing or coach pushing. But it it doesn't really ever look at, well, did she experience the fetal ejection reflex? And I would argue the fetal ejection reflex is something we really don't understand very well. And I'm really passionate about this because I'm so passionate about issues like prolapse and incontinence and diastasis recti. Because when you are coached to push in any form of coach pushing, you are pushing your baby out with the pelvic floor. Now, where does the pelvic floor lie in relation to your baby underneath it why would we try and push with something that is underneath our babies so what's happening there when you're coached to push is you're bearing down so what you're trying to do is increase intra-abdominal pressure so the pressure in your core unit to push your baby out and what we forget by doing that is that the uterus is designed to push the baby out which makes complete sense because the uterus encompasses your baby and so it's pushing down in in like a plunger movement whereas when you're coach pushing you're straining through the pelvic floor and so coach pushing is the equivalent of straining and forcing a poo out or forcing a wee out it's that bearing down so if you're doing that for two or three or four hours what is that going to do to that area in terms of not just the muscle but the connective tissue as well and and so often we've grown up hearing about bones and muscles we've not heard about connective tissue but a lot of issues like prolapse and incontinence it can involve the muscle 
and or the connective tissue. And these issues can be because of strain, but they can also be because, be because of tension. And we get tension from things like scar tissue and adhesions. So my belief is as a baby comes down, which is passive descent, which is still part of labor, and this is the issue with diagnosing the stages of labor, we see that labor finishes once the cervix is open right? So part of labor is the passive descent of baby through the pelvis, which can take hours, especially if baby needs to rotate. For a person pushing their baby out for the first time vaginally, if they're pushing for more than two hours, we see that as a bad thing. Well, it can be if you're coached to push and you're not just resting or breathing through and allowing your uterus to move your baby down. If you're straining the whole time, then yeah, that's not going to be good for the space. But if you're allowing your body to do what it's meant to do physiologically, which is still labor, we really need to see baby moving down onto the pelvic floor and what I believe stimulating the clitoris until the fetal ejection reflex, that's still labor. And so this, I didn't explain this properly, but the fetal ejection reflex is often talked about as when the baby's head stimulates the pelvic floor. And so then the fetal, the messages go to the brain and say, the baby's here, it's time to push the baby out. And women get what is called the fetal ejection reflex. And most women describe it as like their whole body just takes over and there's nothing they can do. And the body goes for it and pushes their baby out. Just like orgasm, just like diarrhea, just like vomiting. And yes, I did just put orgasm in the category of vomiting and diarrhea. And so the fetal ejection reflex, it's not like you can just shut it down. In the whole body does it just like orgasm. Now I know orgasm that can be shut down if you're scared and, and, and the same with the fetal ejection reflex. If other things come in and your body picks up that it's not safe, that can change because the hormones change. But typically as a physiological function, it's not like you can say, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Stop. It takes over and it does it. Now what I believe is this space works exactly the same in orgasm as it does in birth. And that is the clitoris and that erectile tissue gets stimulated too which makes complete sense because as the baby comes down that's what it's going to touch so as the baby's head comes down it stimulates that clitoris and the pelvic floor together but the messages go up to the brain saying we're here and so the fetal ejection reflex the contractions are different they're actually short sharp surges and you get that pulsating the same pulsating we get in orgasm and the belief is that that pulsating moves the sacrum as well and it allows that the contraction of the pelvic floor and then the lengthening which is exactly what happens in orgasm we get the contraction first and then the lengthening so that's the that's what I believe the fetal ejection reflex is. Trying to prove that is going to be incredibly hard because essentially you need an, a need women to birth in an MRI. You said before we started filming that we're probably going to disagree on on this these uh, this pushing phase. And are you thinking because what you're what I'm hearing is that you're saying that that urge that women get to start bearing down that often feels irresistible like we it is like a vomit and you feel like like literally reverse vomiting I have to keep that sound effect in reverse vomiting your baby out and the the urge to push where women are like you can't fight that irresistible urge to bear down to push your baby out are you saying women should resist that urge if we're actually physiologically pushing I'm saying many women can 
actually resist it because I've seen it in my practice. So I will say to a woman, if you can breathe through this, keep breathing. I will say to women when I'm caring for them, keep breathing if you can. And if they can, keep breathing through that urge. And this is where it takes guidance and support. And I want to touch on this and instincts in a second as well. But if I say, keep breathing if you can, if you can fight that urge, keep breathing. And they can fight it and they can breathe through it, then it is just the urge. If they can't, And if they have to go for it, then that's a fetal ejection reflex. And I think that needs to, that's where I still believe you're in labor, if you can breathe through it. However, I have seen many women breathe through the fetal ejection reflex. Now, I've birthed two babies. No way in hell could I have done that. I I think if I birthed another baby and I had the support and I had someone guiding me and telling me to do that, I may be able to. But in both times, I've wanted to push them out. It doesn't make sense to me that we would spend hours pushing our baby out. And I believe that urge to push is what we get as our baby descends through the pelvis and it moves. So I believe there is a difference between pressure, urge to push and fetal ejection reflex. The fetal ejection reflex can't be fought. You have to go with it. Some women will be able to breathe through it, but I believe the urge is what we feel first. And that is where, if you can, and like I said, there's no right or wrong. It's not like you get a score for how you've birthed your baby, but people need to know this and know, okay, I'm going to feel pressure. Then I'm going to feel an urge. If I can breathe through that urge, what you're doing is you're enabling baby to just move through the pelvis and have more time where you're not actually bearing down because any kind of that bearing down movement if we once we start that often it doesn't you know it's a hospital situation it doesn't stop and I don't believe that really physiologically needs to happen for an hour or two if it is it's often because baby needs to move a little bit and get into a different position and if you're bearing down and everything's constricted and contracted and there's less space, like we talked about before, you, you gave a beautiful example of coach pushing. People are told to put their chin to the chest, not make any sound through their throat and really grit their teeth. Now, if you think about the connection between the throat and the larynx and our um, vaginas and the jaw and the hips, right? And this is why we speak so much about making noises like horse's breath or ah and good labor sound like they're having good sex it's to soften and open around the jaw and the mouth and the throat which then has a flow-on effect to soften and open around the pelvis so if you're doing any kind of bearing down then that is going to play out in the pelvic space but for a baby that's in a perfect position and is fitting through the pelvis optimally that probably won't have an effect on that baby. But if that baby still needs to rotate as part of its labor process, as part of its mechanisms, there is now less space. And whilst we're probably only talking millimeters, that makes a difference for babies. And so really trying to soften and open that space. And this is why I love encouraging people to breathe through that urge, because I think what it enables is that baby to move down the line. I don't want to sit here and go, this is how you have to birth. 
and if you don't do it, it's not right. I'm not saying that. But in terms of my headspace, trying to think of protecting the pelvic bowl in birth. And I think a lot of what happens, and this is going to probably really grind people as well. Some of it's going to sit well with you and other times it's not, and that's okay. But a lot of what happens to people that are pregnant is we encourage them to listen to their instincts. And for some women being told that, may they may have been told that for the first time ever while they're birthing. And I can remember doing a, I was at a home birth conference or we had a home birth retreat in the Blue Mountains with um, Lisa Barrett. And she was the first ever midwife to tell me, don't ever ask a woman if she has an urge to push because you put it in her head. Wait until she tells you. And that was one of the coolest pieces of advice I could pick up early in my career. Now, as a baby, we are conditioned to not listen to our instincts, mostly from the way we're parented. And I've talked about this in episodes before, I think. We, you know, especially our generation, we weren't fed on demand. We were fed every three to four hours. Like I was given 10 minutes of feeding every four hours and then put back in the nursery. So from the minute I was born, I wasn't eating as my instincts were telling me. I wasn't I wasn't being fed as I needed to. And then I can remember growing up and getting my hand smacked because I was starving and wanting to eat some carrots that mum was cooking, cutting up. And she'd be like, don't eat those. You're going to ruin your dinner. So if we look right around food, we're taught, don't listen to your body. Don't listen to your body. Don't respect your body. Listen to external authority. Eat at the right times. Eat at recess. Eat at lunch. Don't ask for food because you're in, in, in between classes. You're not allowed to eat in class. That extends to toileting. Just go to the toilet before you hop in the car. I don't need to go. Just try. Don't ask for permission to go to the toilet during class because you'll get in trouble. Go at recess and lunch. A lot of shame is brought around our instincts. When mum comes home and you know that she's cranky and upset and you say, Hey, mommy, what's wrong? And she goes, nothing. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Sleep. Mommy, I'm not tired. Daddy, I'm not tired. Well, it's bedtime. You have to go to sleep. All of these things that happen to us as children tell us, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to your internal authority. We are deeply conditioned to listen to external authority. Now, if you're sitting here going, I still don't believe you, B, just look at most women and how they mother. We don't co-sleep. We don't feed our babies on demand. We constantly buy them devices to fix them. We go against our instincts as mothers. And that is the biggest time in our life where we're really challenged to listen to our instincts. But we unfairly expect women to be instinctual in this one moment in their life when we've told them not to be the whole time. And this is why I think a lot of women appreciate external authority in labour and birth because it's familiar to them. It is also why they don't appreciate it and they resent it afterwards and they blame themselves. I see this so much in birth areas. Why didn't I just say no? Why didn't I speak up for my body? Why didn't I do what I felt was right in the moment? The truth is you were doing the very best you could with what you had at the time. And the very best we can is to be good. This is where the good girl syndrome comes in. And so in birth, we want women to listen to their instincts. We want women to be guided by their body. That can take either a lot of work beforehand to get there if you're going to birth without anybody that is looking after you or a hell of a lot of an epic birth support team that can enable you to feel safe enough to do that. And this is why so many women feel uncomfortable with birth is because it takes you to your rawest state 
And it's telling you, listen to me, listen to me, but there's still those conflicts, right? It is so, birth is, is so instinctual. And for many of us, that can feel incredibly unsafe because we haven't had safety around our instincts. We've been told for 32 years that our instincts are wrong because I think so many women hear their instincts in birth and they go against them because they're being good girls and you're not, you haven't failed, you haven't done anything wrong, but often that's where our thought processes go because, again, that's what we're told. If you don't get what you want, then it must be your fault. And that's, again, how we've been conditioned and isn't true. So I know that was a very big explanation. I told you I was passionate about this. <laughs> but that is where, you know, knowing, okay, there's a pressure, then there's going to be an urge, then there's going to be the fetal ejection reflex. And that urge and the fetal ejection reflex combine. It's not like they're clearly defined as this is when it stops and this is when it doesn't. But as a midwife, women have always been guided in birth by other women. And typically they've been women that have held the knowledge. They've been the midwives. Like midwifery is the oldest profession that there is. And women need that in labor. Not all women, but most women, they we want to be held. We want to, if, if you're ever going to be held and nourished and supported at any time in your life, that transformation from woman to mother is is the epitome of being nourished and supported at that time. If you're going into a, a system that is offering you fragmented care, which means you don't know who your care provider is and you don't have a doula, then this knowledge is really important for you and your birth support person to have. But I don't know. I don't believe there is a cutoff and it's like, right, that urge has stopped and now it's a fetal ejection reflex. I do believe it's blended. There's no right or wrong. It's just doing mm. what works for you in the moment. So, yeah, I do believe the urge to push is different to the fetal ejection reflex. Well, I don't see, I mean, I Come see on. the fetal ejection reflex as the exit of the baby, but there's a lot of work that happens in the body between your body being fully dilated and the baby actually being in a position where it can be expelled. and Which so, is the pushing stage because that is your well, body physiologically push expelling or pushing your baby out. Right. And but in that I, work, I believe that's where the urge to push comes in. Well, that's so women get an urge. So here's where, so I do think you're right. I think there's a lot of points where we're going to disagree in mm. this discussion, mostly because for 14 years, I've been watching women push their babies out or bring their babies out. We don't even need to say the word push, bring their babies out without my guidance most of the time. And I think that giving anybody any kind of guidance in the pushing phase of their labor is a form of intervention in a sense that if they're, if they're going with their body and their body's asking them to bear down and I stop that, what am I interrupting? And I'm telling them not to go with that. Did I just bring them into their mental brain where they're like, oh gosh, my body's telling me to do one thing, but my midwife is telling me to do something else. And I'm almost, that would, I feel like that would be me intervening and telling them not to go with their body and not to follow their instinct. Although there isn't, there's an urge. And I do believe the urge is different to pushing because I can feel like I need to do a poo without actually doing a poo. And so I think that's, the initial part of your baby telling you you're getting ready to push. Then there's the irresistible urge to bear down where women just cannot stop their body from doing that. And, and I think that's involuntary. And then there's the fetal ejection reflex 
or and then the baby comes out. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a, a continuum. And to interrupt any of that by saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. If that's what you feel like doing, just wait, don't do that. I don't know. It doesn't sit with See, I would never use that language, but I would argue that in in conjunction with our instincts is our imprint. And our imprint on what birth should look and feel like comes from what we've seen and heard before us. And so many of us have seen that babies need to be pushed out. So we see that and that bearing down. And so that comes into it. So if a woman is just going for it and they're not talking to you and they're just doing their thing and a baby comes out, that is a fetal ejection reflex. But if she's pushing and bearing down, I don't believe that's physiological. I believe that's learned and it's from our imprints on what birth should look like. But how would you tell the difference in that moment as a midwife? So I wouldn't say you shouldn't be pushing. I wouldn't say that at all. I would say if you want to, try and breathe here. And if they want to, they will. And if they don't, they won't. If you can and it feels good, try and just breathe through this. Because what we're trying to avoid is that strain through the pelvic bowl, that unnecessary strain before the body has actually wanted to expel the baby. And the thing is, you've watched physiological birth, but your clientele is very, very specific. I mean, if If you're going with your body epic, go for it. Please don't think there's a wrong or right here. I'm going to say that six million times. I mean, but we can say it's wrong to push before you feel an urge, though. Oh, yeah. Like, that would be wrong. And and we're going to justify why. But I think if women have, and I think you're right, my clientele, very, very different, highly educated, highly literate in health and in and often a lot more intuitive and trusting in their body. And they don't want to be told what to do. And they've been preparing for birth. And they um, want to trust their body and they want to listen to it and they want to go for it. Yeah. So I feel like interrupting their process, if someone starts to like make, you know, there's that bear down noise, like the noise where you go, oh yeah, she's about to have a baby. And then, and then the expulsion of the babies as a result of the fetal ejection reflex. So I do think if a woman starts pushing before feeling like her body's doing that, that would be not on point. I wouldn't recommend that. That's what happens to so many people in the system because they're diagnosed as being at the pushing stage, which is called second stage, which is purely defined by what the cervix is doing. And it takes in no consideration as to where the baby is in the pelvis. But I think yeah, letting that baby come down, I mean, it's interesting. It's only something I've really thought about in the last like couple of years and then just started playing with and just saying to people if you want to breathe go for it and breathe and what I find is the pushing is only ever a couple of contractions yes which with physiological pushing that's what I notice as well and I think what we've definitely agreed on is that there's a point in your labor where you're fully dilated then there's a point in your labor where the baby needs to descend through your pelvis after your body's fully dilated then there's a a time where you have a sensation to bear down and then there's a reflex the fetal ejection reflex that brings your baby out i would argue that the bearing down is part of the fetal ejection reflex oh that's where we don't agree because like that urge to push well see what you and i are trying to do is define stages well only because you're saying the only reason i would 
think that this would need definition is that there's a point in someone's pushing stage where you would be asking them to do something different to what they were doing. So if I don't need to define it for me personally because Mm. I have never said to a woman, it's time to just breathe through that sensation now. So I don't need to define it for myself. But I think if we're suggesting that women stop doing something that they feel like doing, then we need to kind of have an understanding of where they're up to in their labour to be able to accurately give them that information. Whereas if we're not going to give them any guidance, if we just let women go with their complete urges, then we don't need to know where they're up to. What I've, I think where I, why I came to this is because I saw a lot of women say I've got an urge to push and, you know, it would only be there at a peak of the contraction. It wouldn't be there the whole way through. And what I see, and I'm understanding why we're at different levels here or different beliefs is because that urge to push often gets translated as like they're like, oh, I can feel like an urge and they're told, okay, go for it. And then half an hour later, there's no baby and the urge might come and go. This is what I'm talking about. Not the urge to push where you're fully bearing down and going for it. It's that urge that comes at some during some contractions and not through others or it's there and you can breathe through it. If you can, and this is the thing, it's if you can, if you can't, it's it doesn't just go for it. Do what your body needs you to do in that moment. It's like we have normalized straining our babies out. Mm. And I that's where I've kind of really been like, well, hold up. Can we just breathe until the body takes over? Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I mean, some of them can breathe through while the body's taking over and breathe through. I've definitely seen them. But it's about, for me, it's like getting them to breathe through and breathe that baby down with as much space and little strain in that pelvic bowl as possible until the body takes over. And so what I teach is called the fecal ejection reflex. I passively poo. And so I teach if you can trust the fecal ejection reflex, you can trust the fetal ejection reflex. And what I'm trying to do when I do this is give people different education that our bodies don't have to strain and force. And if you can trust that for pooing, then you can start to trust your body and have a different imprint on what birth can look like. And so I, there's a video on Instagram that I've done and it's in my programs called having the best poo of your life. But basically it's learning how to use a technique I call ucha, where you go ucha, ucha. And so the u is the, is relaxing your mouth and your mouth is the start of your gastrointestinal tract and your anus is the end. So they're linked. So this is a really cool exercise to be like, oh, what I do with my mouth does affect what happens around my pelvic bowl. And I, when I do internal release work, we do this a lot. Like, we, like relax your mouth, relax your jaw. Now see what it feels like in your pelvis. Oh, wow. It's softened. It's open. There's so much more space in there. And this is where I'm big on, okay, yeah, there's instincts, but there's also imprints. There's also what we've learned. And that does affect us in the moments, even subconsciously. And so 
When the oil relaxes, the char causes your diaphragm to contract. And so your poo is passively pushed out in a plunger-like motion, the same as our bodies are designed to push our babies out. And so you can push your poo out. It normally takes about four or five oil chars if you're not constipated. You feel the pressure. There is the urge to push and you want to take over and do it. And some of us that are control freaks will, like they'll just go for it and push your poo out. Others will be able to keep breathing and let that pressure build and then the anus and the sphincter the anal sphincter open and the poo comes out passively and so that I guess that is a lot of what I'm like well if that's what happens in pooing surely that is what's happening in birth too different organs because obviously it's not the anus it's the vagina and the clitoris but it's still that whole pelvic bowl and that integration between brain muscle organs connective tissue all of that in the space mm. we've gone deep here haven't we so look try and trust the fecal have you tried the fecal ejection reflex smell i'm i'm not going to tell you any of that all i'm imagining is your household and the level of sound that goes on with toilet time i'm just imagining your kids sitting at the door while you ucha ucha a poo out the amount of people that send me videos of their partners ucharing the door is typically closed but they're like listen my partner's doing it now because i'm changing the poo culture and if i can change the poo culture we can change the birth culture Yes. And I think the take home message here for women is that you're not ready to push when you're fully dilated. And so if someone checks you and you're fully dilated and they say you can push now, that's not the time. The time is once the baby started to descend and there's some kind of, and this is maybe where the gray area is with what me and B are talking about, is when is the time to trust your body and go with it? B saying breathe until your body takes over. That's a, I feel like that's a nice way everybody could identify that. Like if you're thinking to yourself, maybe I'll just try and push the baby out and see what happens. Remind yourself, just breathe till my body takes over. So then what we're saying is don't just start pushing because someone else told you or because you think you should. Because also you're in your brain when you're doing that. You're not in your body. So you've got to be really in touch with what does what's my body trying to do here. If your body's not trying to push your baby out, it doesn't matter how much effort you put behind your baby, your baby's not going to come out without the action of your uterus. And I would argue there, if you if you're thinking about it, which means you're in your prefrontal cortex and you're questioning it, then it's not the time. Exactly. Because it's your body hasn't taken over, mm-hmm. which means you can still breathe. Yes. So let's talk about that then. What we were talking about was spontaneous or physiological pushing. So that's what me and B are talking about, and we're. We're arguing about the finer details of when should we push. But what we do know is we don't push when we don't feel like it. And I think that's a good basic rule. Keep breathing till your body takes over and you can't deny it any longer. So if you're confronted with the with a practitioner who's like, right, it's time to start pushing and you're not feeling it, it's okay to say, look, I'm going to wait till I feel like pushing before I start. And, again, this is women who don't have an epidural epidural is different so if we look at the research on this there was a study done by Nigel Lee and crew and actually the crew is worth mentioning obviously whenever there's a research project and there's a group on the research project you know it's good if there's multiple authors you know that that is probably going to be a much higher quality study than if there's just the one and I recognize a few of the names here you gal and Sue Kilday were also on this study and they are heavy hitters. 
you know, big head honchos in the research world along with Nigel Lee. There was another author which I didn't recognise the name, but it's Lauren Lultz. So shout out to Lauren. I'm sorry I don't know who you are, but if you were with Nigel and you and Sue, then, mate, they, you must be. You're an honorary Great Birth Rebellion. We already made you an honorary Great Birth Rebellion member. Absolutely. So these guys did some research and they the, the title is Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes from, from a Comparison of Spontaneous and directed pushing in the second stage. So they compared maternal and the outcomes for mums and babies, for women who just spontaneously pushed, went with their urges, weren't directed to do anything, just did what they felt like doing, to ones that were directed pushing. And this article, again, is going to be in the folders for you to have a read of, and it's already in episode 11 and episode 12 folder as well. But in this article... Nigel and Kuru give a really beautiful definition of each. So directed pushing involves a response from the woman to the instructions given by the midwife or support people. And it, it usually consists of this Valsalva manoeuvre where you're holding your breath, throat's closed, there's no noise coming out and you're pushing and they'll usually tell you to push for 10 seconds or more and it could be two or three times in a, in a single contraction. Whereas spontaneous pushing is categorised as a self-directed breathing pattern through contractions and pushing. And usually with physiological pushing, women are making noise. There's a groaning or grunting or like a ah noises or some kind of noise comes along. And there's usually not verbal instruction other than to sort of say, yep, that looks great. You're doing great. No actual instruction. So what Nigel and crew did is they gathered up a huge number of women. There was about 69,000 over a six-year period. And then they gradually whittled them down to a group of women that they could easily compare each other against. So they ended up eliminating uh, a whole people who didn't match their criteria. So women who had assisted vaginal births with vacuum or forceps or epidurals. Uh, so basically any woman who didn't have the baby come out without without assistance was not included in the study, nor were women who had epidurals. Then they uh, every all the women had babies that were full term, that were head down. So they only included women who had no epidurals. The babies were head down and full term. And these women progressed to an unassisted vaginal birth without a vacuum or forceps. So when they took the, everybody out, they got to about 19,000 women. Then they wanted to match them so that the groups were equal in terms of age, health, ethnicity, and all these other factors. So they ended up getting 5,000 women in each group who were pretty evenly matched so that, that they could properly compare the outcomes to make sure there was no explanation for why some women would have had different outcomes in the groups. So pretty good quality with big numbers because previous research done and was represented in Cochrane was saying that they couldn't make good clinical decisions based on the research that was existing. So this was looked at by Cochrane and basically the results were inconclusive. They couldn't tell us whether or not spontaneous or directed pushing was of benefit or of harm because the research wasn't good enough. So then Nigel and crew answered that call and basically went, we're going to do a really good study and I do believe that they have. I think we can rely on this research. So, so when they assessed the two, 
They found that women who were directed to push experienced what they called significantly longer pushing phases and a higher but not significantly higher rate of third and fourth degree tears, a higher use of episiotomy, and that was significantly higher. The episiotomy rate doubled. If you were doing directed pushing, you were twice as likely to get an episiotomy. Also, a reason why some people do directed pushing is they believe that it shortens the time of the pushing phase. But what Nigel's study found was it actually lengthened the second stage, which then puts women at more risk of intervention like episiotomy. So that could explain why they found that. So if we look at the numbers for, if we look at how, uh, for women whose labor was extended, we're looking at, we're going to look at the two groups and look at the actual percentages here rather than just using words like significantly longer. So for first time Women having their first baby, if they were not coached pushing, 2% had a lab, had a prolonged second stage, so over two and a half hours. If they were directed pushing, 3.4% had a prolonged second stage. If you'd had a baby before, 2.6% of women in the undirected pushing group had a prolonged second stage, but this was significant. If you've had a baby before and you've been directed to push, of those women had a prolonged pushing phase compared to 2.6 if they were just allowed to push by themselves. 5% more in the directed pushing. Third and fourth degree tears, there was a difference, but it wasn't considered very significant. So around 5% in the undirected pushing and around 7% in the directed pushing for first-time mums, and it was very similar percentages for women who'd had babies before. Now, this episiotomy rate is what gets me. Okay, if you're a first-time mum and you just do physiological spontaneous pushing in the hospital, this is a hospital stats because this is not women who are having home births or private midwives, you'd have a 13.6% of you would have an episiotomy. The same kind of women, so matched group, first-time mums in the directed pushing group was 23.5%, so 10% more than if you just go with your urges to push. And those numbers were even higher. So that's about yeah, 10% more for primips, for women having their first babies. For multips, women having their second babies, 4.8% had an episiotomy in the spontaneous pushing group. In the directed pushing group of women who had babies before, 12.5% closer to three times the amount of episiotomies. So for women, their labours, their second stage pushing phase is longer and they've got a much higher possibility of having an episiotomy if you're subjected to directed pushing. That's the mums. Now the babies, I won't go through all the stats, but if you want to see exact stats actually, I have a YouTube video on my YouTube channel. Just go to Melanie the Midwife on YouTube and there's a whole YouTube channel which gives you graphs and visual diagrams of this chart that I'm reading from now for the podcast. It's the YouTube video is called Pushing Out Your Baby. You can have a look. It goes for about eight or nine minutes. It's this exact study and it'll give you a visual representation of what I'm talking about. And if you want to see these stats as well, look at the research paper that we'll put in the mailing list folders for those who are on the mailing list. So basically, though, if you are, I don't want to say the victim of directed pushing, but if your clinician uses directed pushing and that's how you get your baby out, your baby has 
almost double requirement to be resuscitated after birth. Again, about a 1% increase in the number of babies who need to go to neonatal intensive care unit and a slight increase in low APGAR scores, which is the score that we give your baby about its condition when it's born. So basically what we know from research and good, I believe good quality research is that directed pushing doesn't benefit women and it doesn't benefit babies. And so it's absolutely okay to stop diagnosing the pushing phase and to let women do what they need to do. And it's absolutely okay not to do coached pushing under these circumstances because it doesn't do what we think it does. It doesn't shorten the pushing phase. It actually clinically lengthens it. Then there's a, the ramifications of what happens to women after they've had a long pushing phase. And that's what I have to say about that. I think we see this and we see it a lot when we're worried that the baby is distressed. And so we get women to push, 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 because we think it's going to happen faster. And a lot of that, it, so it's not evidence-based. It's to make us feel more comfortable. It's to make the situation look more culturally acceptable because we've been seen to do something, you know, and we really value doing. And so it would make sense that if we were yelling at you to do something and you're not doing it, then it's your fault as opposed to if we were to sit back and go, okay, we can see that baby is distressed here and we need baby to get out as quickly as we can. So let's make the environment really relaxed. Let's encourage her to breathe and open up her space and bring that baby down passively. That culturally would be seen as negligent because we're not doing anything. When in actual fact, by doing that, we're supporting physiology. And I mean, there hasn't, I don't know, I haven't found any evidence on this. I don't know if you have, no, I haven't looked for it. But we have this knowledge now about Kiko, knees in, calves out. And how if we just look at the shape of the pelvis, the position that we're in, because most women are coached to push on their backs with their knees up in stirrups. And what happens there is you don't allow the mid pelvis to open up very well, because for the mid pelvis to open up, and the baby's in the mid pelvis when it's still doing that backwards and forwards movement. So it's still in the mid pelvis. If if a woman's pushing when the baby's in the mid pelvis, then the femurs have to come back in like an kind of like a lunge. It's a bit hard to explain with words, but the femurs have to to move backwards for that pelvis to kind of rock forward to back. I'm doing the hand movements, but you can't see me. We know the baby is at the outlet when it stops moving backwards and forwards. And so that position for the outlet where the baby comes out through the vagina, the entrance to the vagina, the knees in, comes out, opens that up. But if your legs are in stirrups, your knees are out. And so what we're essentially doing when we want to get a baby out quicker because we're worried about its its condition, whether it's stressed or not. We are closing off the outlet. We are coach pushing, which we now know increases fetal distress, increases the stage of pushing. None of it is evidence-based. I mean, I feel like if we just just leave it alone, guys, leave it alone. That's pretty much the rule with labour. Leave it alone. We've got That's evidence everything now. we're looking at. Like even the, the talk we did last week on continuous CTG management. So what are we doing? So the biggest part that blows my mind about this is if we look at the Cochrane Review, it states that if you're pushing with an epidural, then you should be given 
passive descent time for your baby to passively descend through the pelvis, which means if we diagnose you as being fully dilated and in second stage, then you shouldn't be coached to push for a minimum of an hour. And what they found when that happened is there was an increased, significantly increased chance that you will have a vaginal birth over vacuum forceps or cesarean if the time is given for your baby to descend through the pelvis. Now, it blows my mind that we have evidence to recommend that for epidural, but no one has thought about how necessary that passive descent is for labor without epidural. And essentially that's what Nigel's showing is the difference between coach pushing or not. But how have we gone, oh, yeah, let's allow this baby to move through the pelvis without trying to push it out when there's an epidural. How is that different when there isn't an epidural? It isn't. And that blows my mind because this research now has been out for like five years. They've understood that fully dilated doesn't mean ready to push. So if we can stop doing vaginal exams every four hours, stop diagnosing full dilation and actually wait till women are exhibiting external signs for us to sit back and let them do their thing instead of going push, 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 push we would avoid this whole situation of not recognising the point of passive descent or descent of the baby through the pelvis. So they... I don't think they have, though. I don't think they have actually acknowledged that it isn't a time. They haven't actually interpreted their results properly. Well, it's the same issue with what we talked about with the labour process where there's a rest and be thankful stage around transition. That's not recognised by medicine. And this... This point between full dilation and actually pushing, this grey area that we're saying just leave it alone, it's just all part of labour, stop over-diagnosing second stage of labour, they missed, they missed that part. Like medicine has missed that there's a part between being fully dilated and being ready to push. And if you're wondering how, please know that they missed our clitoris until 2005. Right. Like if you, and, they, and we've missed calling our vagina our vulva like if you really want to be like well how how have they missed it this is how their knowledge around women's bodies and the magic that they are and the sacredness of them has totally for good and for bad it's been missed yeah so take home message for today i reckon is there's really good evidence to tell tell clinicians and to women that and tell women that it's totally fine not to have an external coach to tell you when to push your baby out and breathe until your body's telling you to do something else. What we also and know start to practice to trust your internal authority. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're thinking. Tapping to when do you feel like you need to push your baby out? What do you feel like your body is telling you to do? And let's respect that moment through the pelvis where you're fully dilated but not yet ready to push that's the part where I think we probably didn't see eye to eye on at the beginning but I feel like we've kind of realized that maybe we're talking about the same thing and then yeah I totally I totally think we're talking about the same thing it's just in practice you typically look after the very very much the same woman whereas I have looked after a huge variety of women and so it's about I'm yeah I'm I'm a different midwife at every birth. There is a lot of barriers 
for midwives in a hospital system to allow women to just go with their physiological process. There's also a lot of barriers for women. So women might have to actually stand up up against the instruction to start pushing. And this might be a point where women need to actually inform their care provider that they're actually planning on waiting to push their baby out so that because they don't want to be coach pushed. And this is where birth mapping is really important where you're like, okay, if I get to the stage where I do have a vaginal exam and I end 10 centimetres and I don't have an urge to push, I don't want to be coached. And this is around informed decision-making rather than consent because consent is implying that you're going to adhere to the policy. Yeah. I think we've got it, B. We will see you in the next episode, Epic Ones. See ya. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>